Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about abuse and biblical counseling. But before we jump into that conversation, uh, let me remind you of PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community. And if you are benefiting from what you're hearing on the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is your best next step. You can learn more about PeaceWorks University by visiting our website at chrismoles.org. Okay, so Recently, uh, I got asked this question, and I want to pass this on to you guys and try to answer uh, as best I can. Chris, are you still a biblical counselor? <laughs> and I chuckle a little bit because it is a funny question, and I I put the inflection on the question how I assume it was being asked. Um, and the answer, the short answer is, yes, I'm, I'm still a biblical counselor. I'm going to... Uh, unpack that here in a second. And even uh, the intro to the podcast says, I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic abuse. Uh, the, the question, however, I think is coming at a time where biblical counseling once again is getting some heat. Uh, and uh, in fact, recently uh, I saw this phrase, quote, biblical counseling is dangerous and never appropriate for cases of abuse. And it's a pretty firm statement, but I understand where it's coming from. And I want to take some time to try to unpack that today, kind of help us process that, because we have a lot of folks listening to the PeaceWorks podcast that are victims, survivors. We have uh, perpetrators who tune in. Uh, We have uh, counselors of all stripes, and we certainly have biblical counselors who listen. And I hope today maybe we can process this together and kind of help gain some clarity and maybe some nuance uh, that will help us moving forward as a church, not just as a tribe. So let's go back to the question. Chris, are you still a biblical counselor? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, I'm a biblical counselor. I'm associated, in fact, with four major biblical counseling organizations. So I'll go ahead and spill the beans Uh, as of... Uh, May 10th, uh, 2022, did I get the date right? Uh, As of the the release of this podcast, I am associated with four major biblical counseling uh, organizations. Uh, The Association of Biblical Counselors out of Texas, I serve them as a trainer and a contributor. And so I have helped uh, with their conference for the last several years, in particular in the domestic abuse track. The Association of Biblical Counselors uh, created a team to do the track-based training uh, in regards to domestic abuse that includes um, myself, Greg Wilson, Darby Strickland, Beth Broom, and Kirsten Christensen. And we have been teaching in that track for a few years together. Uh, I also serve... Uh, and I'll, I'll be serving them as well as a contributor for their upcoming uh, specialized course in biblical counseling with an emphasis in domestic abuse. And so with that being said, the Association of Biblical Counselors is taking the issue of domestic abuse very seriously. Uh, 
They've invited myself to be a key voice in that. And so if you've been listening to the things that I've been saying, um, if you've been interacting with our material at PeaceWorks, and again, you don't have to agree with everything, but if you feel like we have represented that biblical counseling position well in regards to domestic abuse, the Association of Biblical Counseling has agreed, and they've asked me to help uh, craft and, and build some material with them. I also serve the Biblical Counseling Coalition as a council member. Uh, council members function kind of as an advisory committee, and uh, we work to support the leadership. Uh, basketball season keeps me from attending our annual conference, uh, but in a few years I'll be back to that on a regular basis. But that does, does mean that I also interact pretty regularly with other council members for the BCC and their executive director. I'm a certified training director and a certified member uh, and counselor at the International Association of Biblical Counselors. Uh, I've uh, served along with them for many, many years. Um, a lot of freedom within IABC to train and to um, equip uh, other people in biblical counseling. And uh, then lastly, I'm a certified counselor with ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Now, within the groups that I'm a part of, uh, some that I'm involved in, I'm involved in all of these to varying degrees. Some I have a great deal of influence. Um, some I have a great deal of freedom. Others I do not. And that is really kind of part of the biblical counseling movement, that there are a variety of groups, um, some of which I'm part of, some of which I, I'm not, that um, allow for varying degrees of opportunity and and um equipping and training. And so I train for some and I, I do not for others. Uh, let's go back to the quote then. So Chris, are you still a biblical counselor? Yeah. Associated with a lot of different groups to varying degrees. Well, what about this thought that biblical counseling is dangerous and never appropriate for cases of abuse? Well, I'm not going to completely argue with that point or completely disagree. Now I, I do think that, that the current backlash at biblical counseling uh, although warranted to a degree, is far too broad. And unfortunately, I think, therefore, the solution that's being offered, which uh, seems to be, in some circles, kind of a boycott of or eliminating of biblical counseling, is really not going to serve us well um, uh, and certainly not going to serve victims well. I do think that when people offer bad advice, poor advice, no matter what tribe, no matter what stripe, when individuals train uh, without nuance or um, seemingly without a willingness to reflect and reiterate and reevaluate their positions, that is troubling. And so that's warranted. So backlash is warranted in those settings. And, and I think that we should be receptive to that. Um, however, the seeming response of throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater in a lot of ways, I think is unwarranted and even a little bit sad because victims of domestic abuse and perpetrators of domestic abuse in particular, and it could be applied to sexual abuse and others, will benefit more from the existence of this important population of helpers. I think having biblical counselors and churches who provide lay counseling is, is a greater benefit than eliminating that group. However, 
what we need to do, as with any form of counseling or care, is to be more robust and more thorough in our training. In fact, the very first thing I I think we should say, if I could back up and start over, is that one big assumption that a lot of us in the church culture, in the world, in the culture at large, operate under is that is this framework that counseling is the response to abuse. And I really want to articulate this for a second. I really think when we hear uh, the, the criticism of biblical counseling, which in many ways is warranted, I would never come back and say, oh, you shouldn't criticize us. You should criticize us. Um, much of it is warranted, but a, a large portion of that criticism is warranted for any form of isolated care. And what I mean by that is that counseling alone is not a response for abuse. It's a response. It's an avenue of response, but it's only one facet of a holistic community-based response to care and confrontation. In fact, oftentimes when we hear criticisms leveled at biblical counseling, warranted uh, as they are, the response is find a licensed counselor, which may be good advice or may be poor advice because without training in the dynamics and impact of abuse or without some trauma-informed care, um, any counselor will be ill-equipped to handle this case. And counseling alone is really not... um, the best avenue for care and confrontation. It is a avenue, one that we recommend in conjunction, in concert with a community-based response. So I might reword the phrase. I don't disagree wholeheartedly with the phrase. Biblical counseling is dangerous. Uh, It can be. And never appropriate for cases of abuse. It may not be, uh, especially any given counselor. I may say counseling alone can be dangerous, no matter who it's from, uh, as abuse is a complex issue that may require a multidisciplinary approach. And so that's the first thing I would back up to and say, when we as biblical counselors only apply the one-to-one ministry of the word or a cultural corporate ministry of the word where it is the church versus the individual in the counseling room, then certainly we're going to fail. But in the same regards, any therapeutic approach that is only one-to-one runs the risk of um, inadequately meeting the needs of the victim or properly confronting the perpetrator. But certainly biblical counseling has some some pros and cons in that area uh, that are absolutely worthy of criticism but may also work to our benefit. Isn't that funny that some of the things that are our primary problems may also be our primary solutions or areas where we are um, inevitably weak, we may also find strength. So let me walk through some of the accusations leveled against biblical counseling, agree where I can agree with the accusations, but then also offer um, kind of a, a, a converse approach or maybe where it can be redeemed. The first is all you guys care about is sin. And I can see where that comes from. You know, in the infancy of the movement, uh, sin was a big part of the discussion, personal sin. I will say, and if I may, sin will always be part of a biblical counselor's discussion because sin, harmartia, is the idea of missing the mark. And each of us 
have done that personally. Each of us have been sinned against by someone else that has harmed or hurt us greatly. And each of us live in a fallen world where the power of sin is persistent and present. And so in that regard, every biblical counselor will address sin as the air that we breathe and the the water that we swim in. There will be some aspect of missing the mark, both personally, right, collectively, but then also the ways in which people have sinned against us. That will be part of the discussion. I think the dilemma for many is the assumption that when we talk about sin, it's only personal sin. And I will say, some biblical counselors, um, unfortunately, incorrectly, I would say inappropriately, do go on sin hunts. If I can just find the ways in which you're a sinner, I can lead you to repentance and all will be well. It's a very simplistic view of the gospel that does not consider the shame of being sinned against. And that certainly is a huge, huge dynamic in the abuse world, as we are not primarily talking to victims about their personal sin that somehow um, exacerbated the problem. No, we're talking about the ways in which they've been sinned against. That's why as the biblical counseling movement evolved, you heard terminology such as sinner and sufferer. And that interesting balance between the ways in which we harm others and the ways in which we've been harmed by others. Learning that balance will be key to effective biblical counseling, especially with victims, as we don't blame the victim for the ways in which they've been harmed, but we comfort them um, as a sufferer. Of course, the other dynamic is that uh, many have conflated a theology of suffering to always view suffering as beneficial, inescapable, and somehow a um, tool in the sovereign hand of God that must always be endured. Now, some will hear that very phrase and get upset with me, and that's okay, because at some point we're going to have to have this discussion of can suffering be avoided? Can suffering be confronted? Can other individuals intervene on behalf of the sufferer? And I think historically, biblical counseling would say yes, In fact, that is part of our role as coming alongside, not just nuthetic ministry, speaking truth into someone's life, but paracletic ministry of coming alongside those who are hurting. When we think about, um, was it 1 Thessalonians 5, we're called, right, to hold on to the weak, to wrap them up in protection and hold off the cause of their harm. And so there is a role in biblical counseling for, yes, walking through a theology of suffering. Um, Don't waste your cancer would be an example of that, for instance. How is God going to use this process of suffering in your life to make you more like Christ, the provisions, the promises uh, in in pain? But at the same time, there are uh, examples and, and calls and realities in which we stand in the gap whether it be um, protecting the flock or providing escape, respite from harm. So there is definitely a balance there. So yes, I would agree. If, If our biblical counseling has been reduced to everyone's a sinner and our primary responsibility is to get them to confess and repent of their sin and to endure the sins of others, then we've missed the mark.
But if we see sin as central to to our lives, the ways in which we sin against others, we should repent and change and see transformation. But we also have been sinned against. And how do we receive comfort in the suffering? How do we persevere? How do we endure? How do we do that biblically? How do we resist well, right? Those types of principles, I think, uh, must also be brought to bear when talking about sin. So to our critics, yeah, you are absolutely right. Sin is central. And unfortunately, if you have a small theology of sin, uh, you will um, misrepresent the gospel, I think. If you have a large theology of sin, uh, you you will care for individuals in front of you. Uh, second is, um, this is church-wide, and that can be a positive and a negative. It certainly can be a negative in that it changes the rules of confidentiality that we're used to in a secular society. That um, you know, I confide in you and you tell no one. There are some distinctions within the church. And so I think that the first thing biblical counselors should do is understand that when people come to you for help, they're coming with cultural assumptions about confidentiality. And so you should be upfront and honest about your limitations, that you're not bound by the same confidentiality unless you're licensed. Um uh, that others may be. And there are significant people that you may need to loop in to the discussion. Um, and if you're not comfortable with that interaction, that that type of counsel, then maybe we should find someone else to help you. I think count, biblical counselors should be open and up, upfront about that. The other side of the coin, right, the, the downside is it reduces some aspects of confidentiality. The upside is it can include a larger group of caregivers and support system. Now, granted, what we see sometimes in abuse is that system is not used for support. It's weaponized. Uh, I would say that that is, um, like, that's incorrect, inappropriate. The church should not be weaponized. The church, church should be mobilized. And so if we're looking at some of the best practices in domestic abuse work, which is the community-based response, the community-coordinated response, then we would have to agree that the biblical counseling movement has an opportunity with the local church at our disposal to create a church-wide response if if we begin at the right starting place, we've evaluated the, the problem biblically rather than culturally, and then two, we have developed a multidisciplinary team that can serve that person well, right? We're not just reducing it to a counseling problem, but we see, okay, we may need law enforcement, at this time and place when we have victim consent and we're ready to move forward, we may need trauma-informed care to coincide with what we're doing discipleship-wise. We may need safety planning. So we're going to need an advocate on board at some point to help us in our safety planning. We're going to need to inform the security team at church that any risks that may be um, that may occur as a result of our intervention, we're going to need to establish and release uh, godly and mature men who are going to be involved in the confrontation process. And all of this is going to be done in conjunction with any civil or court orders if this has gone, become a Romans 13 issue. And so you see it's a much more complex response than just uh, one person for one hour in one room with one counselor. The, the other criticism is that we often involve lay people. I actually think that that is... A good thing can be a good thing. Certainly, if if a novice or inexperienced person is your primary driver, uh, 
then that's uh, a matter of foolishness. The wisdom would dictate that the more intense a problem, the more mature a response. And so, brothers and sisters, if any of you is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them. And so when we're talking about abuse, we're talking about one person who's sinning in a very unique and harmful way against another. If we're going to engage that process fully, which includes confronting the, the abuser, then we're going to need a mature response because we don't want to be drawn into or tempted into bad behavior ourselves. We certainly don't want to negate consequences. A man will reap what he sows. God will not be mocked. And so we want to make sure we're offering a mature response. And so lay people provide tremendous benefit when it comes to um, providing aspects of safety, like safe housing or um, benevolence or spiritual friendship, all of which are incredibly beneficial to victims of abuse. When it comes to counseling and care, we probably want to go up the ladder a bit to make sure we have a mature, experienced counselor working with the victim and a mature uh, and skilled um, person intervening uh, and confronting the abuser. Uh, the, the fourth accusation leveled is that we're not trauma-informed, which is partially true. Some, some are and some are not. And so I think that, again, goes back to the more intense the problem, the more mature the response. And so who in our congregation, in our community, in our tribe is equipped, best equipped, to address this problem um, from this particular angle? Not necessarily referring everything. It's, it's, it's not about one-stop shopping in any cases of domestic abuse. Can I say that? And I think that's the thing that really I want to articulate where I think the biblical counseling move, movement has really missed it, and I think the cultural uh, counseling movements have missed it, and the actual domestic violence programs have nailed it. They don't have the gospel but they have nailed the practice of building a community-coordinated response. And that is this work should not be done in isolation. You should be involving people up the ladder, right? Mature believers leading each individual aspect of these cases, helping the church navigate them well. And there are some biblical counselors in our movement that have gone up the ladder on this issue. In fact, I, I said this recently at a, at a recent conference. It was actually at the ABC conference. One thing I appreciate about ABC is building these tracks with experienced counselors and caregivers. And they know um, that they can call me and I'll be glad to come and teach on the dynamics and impact of domestic abuse. I'm comfortable in that world, and I'd be happy to come and talk about um, aspects of uh, perpetrator work because I've done that work for so many years. Now, they could call me. I am a certified biblical counselor. I have been in the movement for 20-plus years. You could call me to do a training on anxiety. I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, I could, I could muddle through it. I've worked enough cases, I could probably give you some insight. But why would you call me when there's other people who have done thousands of hours, thousands of hours of work with those who are anxious? And in the same regard, you, you, we should be relying on those who've participated in thousands of hours of working with abuse care. And then that's the, 
last criticism that's often leveled at biblical counseling, and one that I'm going to agree with primarily, is your primary form of equipping is conferences. You got me. I think you're right on board. I think for most of us, um, we operate in two or three jobs. We operate in the church world, sometimes in the, the secular world like I do. And our primary means of communicating and training are through conferences, events, uh, stage-based training. Now, obviously, most certifying agencies have you do observation hours. You have to do supervision hours. But your primary source of information comes from a stage. And I, I would agree with you. I think what ends up happening is you get um, very little practical examples or case wisdom because a lot of times you do have to teach on topics that maybe you're not case-wise to. And I think if we could change anything, it would be more local, localized training where you're actually interacting with the, the cases, you're actually watching the struggle of learning the subject matter, and I think we could do a better job of that as a movement. So I would agree with you on there. Uh, two last things. Chris, why are you still in the movement? Why are you still a biblical counselor? Because I believe in the two primary principles. And that's the thing I think sometimes we lose our way on, gang. And I know I get heat for this. I'm not always the right theological stripe for some folks. Um, you know, I'm too far to one direction or another. I'm not this enough or that enough. But as I recall in, in my training uh, as a biblical counselor, there are two primary theological components that we all agree to. Uh, the first is the sufficiency of Scripture. And the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture is that God's Word is powerful and effective. Second uh, Peter 1.3 says His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so I will not hesitate to open the Scriptures when working with anybody, victim, perpetrator, member of my church, the scriptures will be central to what I do because I believe that the scriptures have power to help believers experience transformation and live a godly life. I won't apologize for that. And I know there are some folks who are very uncomfortable with the idea of having a scripture primary practice. Um, but that is what makes me and keeps me uh, in the biblical counseling movement is I have the scriptures as my primary um, authority, and I do believe that they are sufficient. No, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't open up the scriptures and just say, okay, read this passage and everything will be hunky-dory. Um, I, I would not say you're going to pray the pain away. Those are, are very trite responses to, to what we actually attempt to do. However, I do believe the scriptures are powerful. And I do believe that time in God's word, effectively and, and correctly applying the truth, is tremendously beneficial. Now, your theology will play a role in that. And if your practical theology is so wed with your held theology that you, you cannot tolerate an individual practically living out the scriptures differently than you expect them to, then I think you will have problems in this world. I think you will have problems giving counseling and care 
because our, our goal is not to create Pharisees who follow the system that we've derived for them. It's to create disciples who follow Jesus. And so I can't dictate exactly how everyone's going to follow Jesus. But when it comes to the individual problems that are presented to me as a counselor, how can God's word effectively help you function, effectively function as a disciple of Jesus Christ? And that's where I'm going to go with it. And that's why uh, Romans uh, 15, 14 is so important to our movement, that we are competent to care for each other. Uh, the second, so sufficiency of Scripture. That's why I've stayed in the movement. Second, progressive sanctification. I happen to be one of those guys who believe that the longer I live on the planet, the closer I should be getting to Jesus, and that everything in my life, good, bad, or ugly, is working together to make me more like him. I love Romans 8, 28, and 29, that all things, again, good, bad, and ugly, work together to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he did predestined, he did determine, right, that they would be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So everything in my life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, are working together to make me more like Jesus. Now, again, I think some of us have gone a little too far to try to welcome the ugly into our life. By no means, by no means do I want people to remain in the ugliness of their life. I want them to experience hope and freedom from that ugliness. But that happened. Just like um, the individual who has suffered from cancer sought his oncologist and to be more like Jesus. I want victims of domestic violence to seek safety and to be more like Jesus. I'm not going to deny the power of a theology of suffering, but at the same time, I'm not going to encourage increased suffering out of some, out of some hope that it will make someone more like Jesus. I am going to be part of safety, sanity, and protection. I am going to be a shepherd who tries to protect the flock. But those two aspects theologically keep me in the work, sufficiency of Scripture and progressive sanctification. I want to see people grow, become more like Jesus, not more like my system. I said this to my church on Sunday. I will say it to you as a listener, and some folks will love this. Some folks will hate this, but this is how we'll end the, end the podcast. We will be a place of peace at our church, and we will be peacemakers that invite people into the kingdom of God. And if they so choose to attend our church and to worship with us, hallelujah. And if they so choose to go to the Baptist church or the Presbyterian church or the Pentecostal church to grow in their faith and be discipled, hallelujah. Our goal is not to make adherents. Our goal is to make disciples. And our goal in counseling Again, it's not to make adherence, but to provide the peace and comfort and safety of the Word of God in such a way that the individual in front of us experiences transformation to the degree at which they trust Jesus more and move closer to Him. And that is powerful, whether working with victims or with perpetrators. Appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. There is so much more that could be said so much more that could be discussed when it comes to biblical counseling, and we'll probably revisit the topic, I'm sure. Uh, but until next time, thank you again, and God bless.